Welcome everyone to our late to the party rewatch of Neon Genesis Evangelion, the seminal teenagers versus giant monsters anime of the late 20th century. I'm Frank, and together with Russell and James and a host of special guests, we're walking you through the show as it finally receives wide distribution on Netflix. I'm excited about it. How about you two? Oh, I'm, I am tickled pink that a whole new generation of anime fans is going to learn what uh, what uh, crippling depression really means. <laughs> Hopefully one of our guests eventually through this review series. And yes, uh, spoilers, we are going to be talking about the show. Jesse Barufi, I think he summed it all up perfectly. He says you should watch the first 24 episodes and assume it all went according to plan. (laughs) (laughs) We won't be doing that. We're going to watch the whole thing and talk about it. I think we're doing the first six episodes, the introductory six episodes to this series. Is that right? Yes, sir. All right. Let's talk a little bit about our histories with the series. Uh, Russell, it was your great idea to do this. So why don't you go first? Oh, boy. Okay. Well, um. I think it's interesting to sort of look at my own history with giant robot shows because I think those were the first cartoons I remember really enjoying. It was like, you know, um, Transor Z and then Voltron sort of took off and then Robotech. And then I went through a period in my life where uh, it was decided that these kind of geeky shows were bad for me. So I was going to stop watching them. But uh, so many of my friends around me in like, you know, early college were just so taken by this, this uh, series that I got to sort of watch it on, you know, other people's televisions on their, you know, their VHS, uh, and so on. But even then I hadn't seen all of it. So when I turned 35 and decided that I didn't really care what everybody else thought of my tastes in entertainment, I said, you know what, I'm going to go back. I'm going to watch through all these and I'm going to, you know, really dig into what I remember being uh, a really unique and exciting uh, show back in the day. And, uh, Hey, what do you know? It, uh, it was, it still is. <laughs> I think, um, I was 13, uh, maybe 12, when I first saw Evangelion. And I'm going to be honest, you know, well, I found it unique as well. Um, You know, rewatching it so far, I just can't imagine how much I was missing, you know. And there was probably a reason why, as far as the giant robots thing went, I came down kind of on the side of Gundam. Its themes were a little... You know, at least its obvious themes were a little less uh, underneath the surface, but it's made this rewatch really enjoyable because I'm getting so much more out of it now being, you know, in my 30s and and just seeing how much just how much is really built into this show that, you know, is either inspiration for so many other things I've seen come from it or the inspiration it takes from other media I've, you know, ingested since then, you know, when I obviously was like, ooh, cartoons. Right, right. James, uh, so, yeah, like you said, the DNA of this is in, in so many different things, but you said Gundam. What what Gundam did you cut your teeth on? Probably Gundam Wing, but I did go back and do um, the original Gundam as well as a lot of other Gundams. My, you know, not that this is a conversation about Gundam, but my favorite Gundam is probably 8th MS Team, which is like a short eight-episode series, um, or I think maybe 13 um, but it, again, a little bit more of a realistic, grounded take on the Gundam universe. It, that's a good one. It's a good one. I asked because I, th- I assumed Gundam Wing for some reason. I was like, <laughs> you oh, were looking. right. Yeah, I, I, I think that tells a lot because everybody, how you get into, especially like classic series like 
Neon Genesis is that like, where, where were you in your life when you first experienced it? And more importantly, what, what else have you already experienced? What has already been like established as token that you didn't realize maybe got its start in this show? So I, I think like Russell, I, maybe I was late high school, maybe late high school, probably early college when I, I first saw this. And back in those days, you had to hope someone Found, like got a VHS at a convention and passed it around and you got a copy of it. Like it, it was arduous finding anything. Uh, certainly you weren't getting same day releases. Uh, you weren't, you didn't even necessarily have the option of sub or dub. You got what you got. You know, it was most likely if you're an American watching this, you would probably have gotten the dub just because of access. It was considered, you know, just something that you could more likely get. So, it's very likely that I didn't see all of it originally. I, I may have only seen a few episodes here and there, whatever my friends managed to secure and share. And that's a thing that we just don't have anymore. We're talking about it now because uh, it's uh, the show's on Netflix. So pretty much everyone's going to be able to see it, uh, which is great. But uh, back when this first hit, if you were not a Japanese watcher if you if you were an inter, a member of the international audience you were lucky to get what you got well, that's true and i mean i think um that sort of leads us into one of the one of the age-old questions of any anime which is sub or dub you know which would you prefer and all that and i'm going to be one of those um filthy casuals or whatever and say that i actually <laughs> i actually like the dub uh but honestly i i attribute a lot of that to nostalgia uh, oh, because yeah. it was vhs that was it there was no subtitles option you could just click a menu and see that and so those voices and those lines and just kind of baked into it i mean that's the thing even though i didn't see much of this show when it first came out it was one of those things that just like immediately caught in my mind perhaps because it was different perhaps because uh it was dealing with a lot of issues around uh depression and sense of identity which me being a you know, being a, a moody intellectual college student was, you know, was very present in my mind. Uh, so a lot of that stuff just sort of stuck so that now whenever I do think of the show, I think of those voices. I think of Spike Spencer's, you know, like wailing and moaning and, you know, and, and that the those those voices mean that I, I kind of have to stick with the dub just for that, you know, that that sake of, of uh, uh, memory. It's funny because I, I had this thought when I was watching. Um, I put on the dub because I, I just uh, am a very busy person and have been doing a little bit of work while I've been doing it and I didn't want to miss anything. Um, but it's funny because I think the dub has given me uh, even more of an appreciation for kind of the visual storytelling that Evangelion brings to the table. I, I don't want to say the dub is bad, but obviously like as a big modern watcher of anime, our our dubbing and our dub actors have just improved greatly. <laughs> um, so, I, w- I won't argue with that point. That <laughs> yeah, there's definitely like there are epochs, right, of anime, and this is definitely of an older age. Not necessarily worse, but just a different period of time. And during this period of time, things were stylized differently, animated differently, paced differently, and 100% voiced differently. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's weirdly hard and very nostalgic to listen to right now. It's true. And a lot of what you say there also sort of feeds into the overall quality of the show. I, It is a show of, of, of very high quality animation and art. 
overall, but rewatching it, you can really see where they are trying hard to stay under budget, like from the drop, where they are like, okay, these people are going to have a long conversation. We will be focused on the back of this other character who is listening in, and we will stare at this person's back for a good 45 seconds because we can't afford to animate any lip flaps right now. I'm going to jump in, though. I've seen them use it, though, a few times already in, like, incredibly creative ways. I got a great shot. I even wrote it down in my notes. Urinals. There is a shot when all, like, when Shinji is still, like, you know, new to school and is kind of being bullied. And there's just a shot that's just an establishing shot where the camera just arcs across a bunch of urinals in the bathroom while a bunch of dialogue is happening in the background. Uh, people discussing how, you know, angsty and teenagery they are. And I'm looking at this and I'm like the pacing, the slow mo- moments of this show are phenomenal for a show about giant aliens and robots and etc. You wouldn't expect that the slow points are some of the most interesting things you could see, but that, just like Russell said, it's m- saving them lots of money because they don't have to animate a single thing in this. Well, Obviously, you have to do a little bit, but like no moving, moving mouths, no lip syncing, nothing. It's just establishing shot. And I, I actually can't believe it was that one of the urinals actually had uh, do not use. And it was the filthiest urinal in there. And somehow I was transported back to high school just with that shot. The, the shot that it brings it most to memory for me that I think is also amazing, even though it's clearly meant to... Um you know, keep the budget. Masato is talking to um, the director, Shinji's father. And, you know, the shot is just a close up of her face. And it says, you know, thank you, sir. And then she immediately goes into a conversation with another person in another place. And then the next shot is, um, you know, is her talking to that person. But they were able to save a good second or two of frames by just essentially rewinding that frame and playing the thank you over again, just in reverse to get her lip flaps. And, it just, it, I was, you know, like George Lucas moment right there, you know, with like creative transitioning. It, the show really has a very unique style of visual storytelling where, you know, like obviously they were trying to stay under budget, but where they didn't let that compromise their art and their vision. And I think that's really great, you know, because yeah. I just, so much of the stuff today, you know, and I get, I feel like I'm getting into <laughs> anime today, but I'm it's so, it's so, glossy and so bland and there's so much stuff that just doesn't feel it just doesn't feel like this you know what i mean it it's like that um the idea of like when the artists when the artist stays hungry they have to be good in order to bring across this craft it has to come from a place of understanding and study like uh, hideaki ano has to you know the director and gainax animation they, they have to know where they can trim those corners, but do it in an artistic way. And they are, they are masters of transition. They are masters of like setting up a a camera shot and so on. There are several instances where Shinji is walking along a street. It's an extremely forced blank perspective where the, you know, everything is aligned with everything else. You know, it's exactly the kind of like, uh, uh, of, you know, it's exactly the kind of art that you would say, Oh, that's, that's very childish. All of the trucks are just a flat box, you know, just moving. Like the camera is positioned in such a way that everything is straight on and nothing is moving in, in three dimensions. But it is so like those those parts are so well crafted and the focus on the dialogue and the conversations that are happening kind of let you just sort of buy into it as like, no, there's there's still like drama and story and so on going here. They're saving a few bucks. 
but they are doing it with, with a sense of art, with a sense of, of artistry. Um, you know, so that then when it is time to have a 300 foot tall robot, you know, leap across uh, the screen, you know, well, we've got plenty of money and, uh, and animation cells left in order to uh, to do that stuff, which they have to do just about every episode. Right. It also helps to build character because as he's walking morose through the street and it's everything's very flat and featureless, that is reflective of what his current mood is or his mm-hmm. eternal mood is. It's just just fabulous use of of the medium that they chose to work in. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, it is it is very much an expression, and I think that's another thing that kind of attracted me to the series was the idea that so many of these other shows, like you know, the first one that I sort of glommed onto was Robotech, which had a bit of like human drama mixed into things, but it was always kind of stilted and and weird and very much like and now soap opera. But this was just so much more personal. We are, especially in these first six episodes, we are delving deep into, you know, a troubled 15-year-old kid and just what he feels the world to be, what his place is in the world. And, and it's, you know, it's nothing like those adventure stories. I mean, we have a slightly morose hero to start us off in Gundam, but, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, 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 Amano? I'm, oh, I'm blanking on the name and someone's going to yell at me for that. I think it's Amaro? Amaro. I think it's God, Amaro. It. Yes. We have the slightly morose character there, but I mean, he's too busy moving forward in his military career. But you're right. Shinji is just kind of he is where he is. And it's much more real for a 15 year old kid to not really see a way out of that quite so readily, even if he's you know been put in a giant robot and sent to go, you know, fight off an invasion or, or something like that. He, he, he is still very much a kid. The characters retaining their kidness, I think, is one of the things that's really made this stand out to everybody it's it speaks very much to that sort of perception of how important your teen years are though people tell you like oh no you'll you'll go past that whatever you'll grow up but you know they are important years to you they stay with you and so on so it's uh it's valuable that this show is just sort of leaning into that saying yeah examine this think about it consider it for this larger narrative one of the things that i like the most about watching this again as a adult is what perhaps when I watched it as a young person, you know, that you identify with this teenage struggle. Uh, at least you could kind of remember what it's like to believe that the world is on your shoulders and that you have no, you know, no actual control over your life and that your father maybe has a little bit too much. Uh, but now I'm watching it in the 21st century. And what I'm most impressed with in terms of world building is how the show deals with a post-catastrophe Earth, uh, which was really just sci-fi when this show first came out in the late mm-hmm. 90s. People mm-hmm. were afraid of it, of course. It was still very much on people's minds. But it that ha- seems to have transitioned from science fiction to science reality uh, today. And... Even though we're not necessarily under threat of alien invasion, we do feel like it does feel like every day there's an urgency, a clock that's ticking uh, towards climate change and other horrible things that are definitely on the verge of affecting our everyday lives. Well, yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, just to break in for a second here that like the one of the first shots we get is, you know, a city underwater. You know, that and that that's our first clue is like, hey, there's been an apocalyptic event is. You know, we just see water covering over buildings and then we move on. Right. It throws you in deep. And I think that was the 
thing that stuck out to me the most when I turned on episodes one and two and really started this up again. You know, like I obviously know the lore of Evangelion because I've seen, you know, the series before in its entirety many years ago and then, you know, on and off stuff from it since. But I forgot just how how much it asks you to just figure out from the beautiful context it gives you the shot of the city underwater giving you the name of the city of they're in is Tokyo 3 by talking about Second Impact. They don't spell it out for you. And that's just always one of my favorite things about the, as a viewer. They give you enough to kind of piece stuff together and try to figure it out as you go. And then they'll fill in more as it, it gets there. But that's just a beautifully done in the first two episodes, you know? And there's no, you know, for a series that I think, you know, really is best in its slow moments. Those first two episodes have a lot of fast moments. You know, it just flies at you hard and heavy, you know, trying to get into this world and this huge government organization. And, you know, for lack of a better term, Shinji, kind of our point of view characters place in it, you know, and it's great that they ground it, you know, by giving us his father and him kind of being the, you know, the, you know, the overarching, you know, man in the government, as it were, but it's still a lot. And it's it's just impressive how they handle it. Yeah, pacing is done amazingly well throughout this. And that's part of the world building because they, they give you this sense of, of despair, yet optimism, how we came back from the last catastrophe. And then there are little things where, where again, pacing builds out the story, where at the end of the first episode, Shinji is about to fight off uh, an angel, is about to have like this climactic battle. Start of the next episode, it's over. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. feels fatalistic, right? It it feels like there was a failure there, but maybe not a a catastrophic one since they're obviously still around. Um, And and as you find out more, by the end of that second episode, you get a window into how things went south during that first battle and how miraculously Sinji, who has this mysterious connection uh, with his Ava or with Ava is, is able to win despite the fact of having a disassociative break. And that just builds up more mystery. It's more than just seeing our hero almost lose and then win, which every story has done since the beginning of time. This is showing us, basically not even letting us pay any attention to how he won for an entire episode, a bunch of establishing, establishing uh, material for the character. And at the very end saying, Oh yeah, he won despite great odds, but this is creating even more mystery. That's just going to pull you in for the next, at least the next four or five episodes. Mm -hmm. It's not just that it's that it's perfect because it doesn't glorify what happened in the sense that, you know, Shinji wins because of this berserker's rage he goes into. And and most other robot series, they'd focus in on that. They kind of like, you know, our hero, hero went into this crazy berserker rage. But they they really look back at it as this, you know, I mean, yes, Nerve is happy he won, but anyone else looking in on the outside, and they touch on it in episode three, you know, um, with the, the school kids. Um, you know, anyone else looking out on the inside is like, this guy's supposed to protect us. He went nuts. You know, it really, it sets the tone so perfectly for the show that we're about to watch that it's great watching this in such quick succession again, because somewhere in the middle there, you lose, you forget 
this tone that these first two episodes so well establish, which is why the end, I think, blindsides you so much. <laughs> mm-hmm. We we have to talk about Ray, of course, but I think before we get to her, I do just want to say a few words about Masato because I think she's an interesting, interesting character because we'll learn more about her uh, place in the world as our story goes on. But when we first introduce her, she's um, she's really an odd character. You know, she's got this weird sort of bubbly energy, uh, but she's working for a super secret para- paramilitary organization. Um, you know, she's sort of playfully hitting on Shinji. Uh, and then ends up very quickly becoming his his sort of guardian when things with him and his father don't work out. So she's she's kind of an uh, an odd an odd character because I can kind of see that she's a lot of in other animes this that's the role played by three different people, but then Masato is sort of doing all that work at once, you know, in this very um, <laughs> uniquely written character. I think they do a um a great job with her, particularly obviously the the hedgehog's dilemma, right, which is episode four is focused really kind of her on Shinji's relationship mm-hmm. and um I just I really like Misato, and I, I guess we get more into it in the next arc, but I think I really like for for a series that surprisingly has like a lot of fan service and a lot of other st- items that feel dated just mm-hmm. Masato's place in this whole the whole structure at nerve never feels unearned you know she really does feel like a powerful woman in this government organization despite the bubbly attitude and all that sort of stuff which is you know for again an, an anime that has a lot of the other 90s tropes about it feels very appropriate and very modern at the same time you know which i think is awesome right which is really lends a lot to her character yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, that does sort of emphasize the idea that she, in any other show, um, she would be split up, <laughs> her behaviors be split up amongst different people. You know, there would be the ditzy one, and then there would be, you know, the, you know, the uh, uh, officious one. But by having it not be so compartmentalized into that, like, I mean, it would be a harem show. <laughs> it, it, you know, today, it would be a harem show. Misato would be three girls living with Shinji, you know. Uh, We're going to re- uh, review Tenchi Muyo next. I, I guess. I guess we are. I guess I just said no, that. No, up. no, 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 no. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but that's the thing. I think because in a way we see so many aspects of her, she becomes a very full character very quickly. Should we talk about Ray, the uh, the pale blue haired elephant in the room? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to talk about Ray. Obviously, her significance in the series um, is crazy important, but also because our arc you know, ends with her. We kind of start out obviously with these serious episodes about Shinji and we have some fun in the middle and then we kind of slow things back down again as we get to know Ray and a little bit of foreshadowing about Ray's relationship with, um, you know, Shinji's dad. Mm. Yeah, it is. Um, it's interesting how they, they first present her um, because when you look at like sort of the anime tropes or whatever, Ray's stuff comes up a lot in future. Um, she sort of becomes a uh, a template for a lot of uh, different um, characters and character ideas as they as they go forward. But yeah, when she's first presented, she's very much this uh, victim. She's you know she, they present her wheeling her out on a hospital uh, bed and telling her you know and telling Shinji, well this you know this poor you know uh, uh, invalid is going to have to go and climb into that giant robot because you you know won't stop whining you know and that that's how he first meets her. And I mean, apart, apart from that weird, where he, you know, weird moment where he sees her on the street for a second and then like, Oh, and then she's gone, that mysterious flash. 
But uh, then it, it just kind of keeps her as that sort of weirdo, that kind of outsider for a while after that. I think it also tells us a lot about Ray's relationship obviously runs very concurrent to um, Shinji's father. Uh, even when we were first introduced to her, he, you know, the fact, the idea we get that Shinji's father is willing to take Ray and put her in that machine because that's what has to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, was, I, I'm obviously on board with Shinji there. Like, no way, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> um, but obviously like, Shinji's father is very important to Rei with Rei 1 and 2 when obviously Shinji goes to deliver the um, the ID card and she sees that Rei has a pair of Shinji's father's glasses. You know, we see that Rei's relationship to um, him is uh, one of obviously admiration, which is interesting in parallel to Shinji, who obviously feels no admiration for his father, you know, as much as he would want to feel what Rei's feeling. And then getting the story that he went out of his way to help Ray, to save Ray, almost builds this sort of, well, it gives them this dynamic that brings them closer. It also brings, gives these two characters this dynamic that will forever keep them just at an arm's length because they, they're never going to see eye to eye on what's essentially the bo- most important figure in both their lives. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's, that is kind of the... Um... Ray 1 and 2, it, it's interesting because that was, for my viewing, that was the, one of the points where I first sort of sat up and said, oh, oh, what's going on here? Because we have that uh, infamous scene where Shinji just walks into her apartment, Ray comes out of the shower, um, and she's more concerned with taking Gendo's uh, glasses out of Shinji's hand than she is with the fact that she's naked. They have that really awkward moment where Shinji trips and lands on top of her in kind of the impossible, you know, uh, etchy, um, you know, anime way. Oh, the 90s. Yeah, oh, the 90s. But then it's played (laughs) off as being really just like the discomfort of that scene really leans in there, you know, where it's like, haha, we've been playfully laughing at Masato, like, you know, uh, showering in the past few episodes. But now, like, we have this this moment where Shinji is having this, well, what for some people might be considered, you know, a a, uh, a sexual encounter, but really more of, you know, a, um, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a kind of harassment, honestly. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, I think it's unasked for. At the very least, it's, it's deeply embarrassing. Yeah, deeply embarrassing, at the least. I think you're right, though, Russell. The show plays it really well, in a sense mm-hmm. that, you know... Uh, you know, comparing it to Masato is perfect, right? That the fan service with Masato is always playful. It's always, you know, in your face. Hey guys, you're watching your giant robot anime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here the scene feels uncomfortable, you know, and I don't even remember liking the scene as a 13 year old, 14 year old boy where clearly I would have been like, yay, fan service. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it really, it does play uncomfortably. And I mm-hmm. think that's, that's really well done. You know, I'm, you know, as much as maybe we could still do without the scene playing out exactly like that, they don't, they don't make it gratuitous fan service. They make it very intense in a way that is uncomfortable. There is a yeah. follow up, I believe, to that scene where, where uh, Shinji just says, have you tried smiling? 
that I was like, oh, I'm going to write that down and underline it a couple of times. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> that, does, that did not age well. <laughs> or that or that got lost in the translation at best. The the scene right before it, though, is great because as we were talking about, um, you know, Shinji's father before, we get this parallel that Shinji and his father are a lot alike because Shinji also jumps in, you know, to save Rei. And it kind of, you know, and this is at the end of Rei 2, it really establishes their connection going forward. Rei, despite the fact she knows Shinji doesn't like his father, can see that despite their differences, they are similar. You know, and that comes with good and bad. So I think we should probably wrap up the show by uh, discussing some of our favorite parts of the first six episodes. Things that maybe just we didn't have a chance to bring up non sequiturs. Um, just related to what James just said. Uh, I, I don't know if this is one of my favorite parts, but one little thing I made a note of was why aren't the handles to the escape pod made of ceramic by now? <laughs> <laughs> after the first severe burn i think we should invest in ceramics well that was foreshadowing for the later one you know the drama the drama oh, okay. would fall that's apart if we didn't uh that's reasonable but mm-hmm. anything else i was gonna say um even though they only have one big episode in this arc uh shinji's friends ground this series a lot we're mm-hmm. gonna come back to them in ways that are important and prolific um you know and they really give him give him a sense of relatability because when we meet Shinji, he's this loner um, and they're a lot of fun. So, you know, I, I really like that. I think it's the third episode where everybody gets to know him, even though it kind of, you know, doesn't seem as important overall. Uh, I really like it. Also penguin. Yeah. Oh yeah. Penguin. Penguin. Woo. Pen, pen. Woo. Yeah. I, I was going to say one of the episodes we kind of touched on a little bit, the hedgehog's dilemma is an inter- a very interesting episode because it pulls back away from all of the action and all of the things that have been happening to this point for us to just dive deep into Shinji. Hey, Shinji is depressed. Shinji has, you know, emotional problems. Shinji has abandonment issues. And we sort of wallow in that for a whole episode. I mean, to the point of him, you know, wandering off on his own, uh, (laughs) sleeping on the street overnight and so on. And even though, you know, Nerve is, is sitting back, with their security forces just waiting for the opportunity to scoop him up when they decide it's time, we still sort of see that play out. And that's, that's a really powerful episode that they would, you know, that they would be uh, willing to, to go there for that, you know, to, to really uh, dig into it. And I mean, we, they give us some characterization of other people around him as well for a little bit of, of contrast or to see how he plays off other people. But it's, um it's a bold episode, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, something I love is we, we already talked about how much the production design is amazing, but there's so many little areas just of world building and, and attention to detail that I, I could go on forever. Uh, there's a moment when a um, power coupling falls out of one of the, one of the uh, Ava and then mm-hmm. before it land, before it crashes to the ground, the power coupling kind of has this little jet that explodes so that it it sort of like shoots up a little bit so as to like soften the crash of the coupling. And that's just like an amazing little attention to detail because, yeah, it's an expensive, dangerous piece of equipment that's falling to the ground. You're going to want to have some sort of retro rocket that stops it from whether or not that would actually ever work. I don't I didn't care. It looked cool and it makes you feel like this was something someone actually engineered. Mm -hmm. Someone actually built this thing. It's that, um, you know, Gundam uh, is famous for the idea of the real robots, 
where, you know, the robots were actual, like, you know, mechanical things, which is why people love to build Gunpla, because you don't just build the exterior of the robot, you build all its guts. You know, it's made like a, a real thing. And I think that's an influence that a lot of good shows have carried on, the idea of really thinking about, okay, what are the mechanics behind this thing? Like, in the geo front, what are the mechanics of building this gigantic underground city? What are the mechanics of these buildings that shift up and down out of the ground, you know, to, to you know, to, to evacuate the city by, by moving it all subterranean? Uh, you know, things like that really show a, a genius attention to that kind of uh, construction. Uh, you know, you're talking about the city. I really love the moment where Masato takes Shinji to to see the city when it all moves and everything. I feel like when we're first introduced to Tokyo 3, it kind of feels like this. We, we, we see it so much from Nerve's perspective, right? This kind of like secret base or whatever. But this adds like that sci-fi wonder to it. And that's that's just, and I think it ends that episode too. It just adds... Mm-hmm just add such a great accentuating point to that, you know, this is going to be our home for the next however many episodes. And you should think it's wondrous too, because, you know, we're going to have to protect it, darn it. Yeah. Uh, so what are we excited about for uh, things that are coming up without being spoilery for the next uh, <laughs> the next batch? Well, can I say Asuka? Because I love Asuka. Can, yeah. Yeah, you can say Asuka. Because I, I would Yay. say Asuka too. <laughs> I think there is there's one thing I just want to touch on from... Uh, episodes five and six, which I think is really one of the interesting uh, things. The reason why I saw this, why I kept saying, oh, this is the first arc, uh, partially because that's the content of the the first of the new movies. It really goes like, you know, recreates everything from that, you know, episode one, Shinji arrives up to the, uh, you know, the, the battle with uh, with uh, the fourth angel and, um, you know, and that, that sniper scene. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, this is double O's, double O one. What, how are they? I don't know how they're numbered, but this is the first re-release movie, right? This is the the first six episodes or whatever. I think the thing that interests me most about it, and this is one of the things that I've also thought, is if you wanted to have a happy ending show, like not a hey, hooray, everything's wonderful show, but a show where it was like, hey, things are going to get okay. Things are going to be all right. Then you should stop watching after episode six, because that's where... Um, Ray gets her moment of humanity. Shinji gets his, his moment of, of connection with her, you know, and sort of through her, his father. And, you know, there's, that's a nice little bit of, of, of symbolism there. And then that's all going to get fouled up when, when, when other people stick their noses in. But it is, it is a, it's a really beautiful moment to end out that episode. Uh, even though, of course, it can't last. Uh, I think it's worth, it's worth thinking about just what that, what that means to him, what that means to her, and uh, you know, and the humanity that these two people can reach in that moment. I'm very excited that we get to do this. I hope people are enjoying it on Netflix right now. It's gonna be, um, it's memorable. Well, I think we could leave it at that. <laughs> it's a, it's a memorable show. Definitely. If you enjoyed this, please like, follow, and subscribe to the Nonproductive Network, where we provide the finest in teenagers versus giant alien content you could imagine. Uh, there are going to be a few more episodes left in the series as we recover it, maybe even a few articles on the website as well. So uh, stay tuned. This has been a Nonproductive Media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablawi. This program and many others like it on the Nonproductive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.